I invite you to turn for the last time to the book of 2 Kings. Last time we will be in the book of Kings. Last sermon from this pulpit here as we gather together to worship the Lord. We've had a long journey through the books of Kings. I pray that the Lord has used His covenantal stories and His Word in your life. It is fitting that we end this book as we end our wandering in the wilderness here of Taylor High School. And I dare say for many of us, myself included, this may be the first sermon you have ever heard or heard of on the last either of the last two chapters of Kings. It's not exactly an exciting and uplifting story unless you look a bit deeper. We'll do that this morning. I'd like to just begin by reading from God's Word. I'm actually going to start at the very end of chapter 23 and take us through the first seven verses of chapter 24. Let us go to God's Word together. This is the Word of the living God. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. And it is completely authoritative for your life and mine. 2 Kings, chapter 23, beginning at verse 36. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned for 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebediah, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it. According to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Now the rest of the deeds of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. And the king of Egypt did not come out again of his land. For the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt, from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we ask this morning that you would teach us from your word, that you would teach us not only what we ought to know, but how we are to obey you, O Lord. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. There are certain stories that we know or we hear of that after we have 
seen them once or heard them once, even if the story itself has elements that are thrilling or pleasing, the fact that the ending is so sour can make us not want to watch them or hear them ever again. You know what I mean? It's perhaps, for example, like the story of Benedict Arnold, the great American general who saved American forces on several occasions by his wit and his bravery. He was a hero of the revolution until he was a traitor. And he died in obscurity, ashamed, maligned, hated. It's very difficult to get into the story of Benedict Arnold now that we know the end. Or perhaps some of you have difficulty with a literary play. For example, it is difficult at times to comprehend the beauty of King Lear or of Hamlet, knowing that in the end, everybody dies. There's a sad ending. Perhaps even in our own circles, there's the example of the story of Jim Elliot. We think of his bravery, we think of his commitment to the, to the gospel, his commitment to missions, and yet the end of his life brings us sadness and grief and takes a bit of the luster off of the joy we have in rejoicing with his commitments. That's a bit what this story is like for us this morning. This is the story of the last days of Judah. It's a story of sin, a story of stupidity, a story of doom and danger. And yet we need to hear this story, to hear how the Lord works in His people. And how even when there is no hope, God is the God of hope. And so what I would like us to see this morning is first the fearful end of human responsibility. The fearful end of human responsibility. This chapter in itself, in a nutshell, plays out what has been a conundrum for so many. The fact that we as creatures of the living God have responsibility for our actions. And yet at the same time, we'll see in our second point, the faithfulness of God to His Word. We see human responsibility and the complete sovereignty of God set side by side. And then at the end, we will see a faint echo of hope. So the fearful end of human responsibility, the faithfulness of God to His Word, and then a faint echo of hope. Let's begin first by looking at the end, the fearful end of human responsibility. We might ask ourselves two questions as we look through these two chapters and we see the stories of death and destruction. We read a bit of it here at the beginning of chapter 24 as we see more kings go into exile and we see blood and death and war. And the first question we might ask ourselves as we place ourselves in the place here of those in Judah is, will we ever learn? Will we ever learn what God has in store for His people? Will we ever learn to obey the commands of the living God? And we see here two kings 
that are very different, but at their core, they're the same. These are the kings, Jehoiakim, as we see here at the beginning of chapter 24, and King Zedekiah, previously called Mataniah, at the end of chapter 24. Why do I say that they're different? Well, first, Jehoiakim is known as being a cruel, staunch, decisive king. He was vigorously anti-Jehovah. We know this from the prophet Jeremiah, who is a contemporary with all that is happening here this morning. He was cruel in this sense, in the middle of the worst economic crisis of Judah. And I don't mean this pretend worst economic crisis we have now, where the malls are filled and the airplanes are filled. I mean where people are starving to death in the streets, where they have no food, where they have no hope of work, and where when they do work, enemies come in and steal it. In the midst of this, he hires men to build a magnificent home for himself. It's kind of like AIG bonuses times 20. And as if that weren't bad enough, after the job is done, he stiffs payment on the workers. This is the kind of man here that is leading Judah. He has a sideline business as well. It's a profit-killing business. He chases down prophets of the Lord who have the word of the Lord, and he sees that they're executed. This is the man that leads Judah in this hour. Later on, a relative of his, Zedekiah, Madaniah was his name, comes to the throne. And he is different. He's not decisive at all. As a matter of fact, his main problem, if you look at the book of Jeremiah, is that he can't make a decision to save his life. He's like the politician that you are not able to ask a question until he has read his morning paper and seen which way the polls are leaning. And if you know the book of Jeremiah, you know he goes back and forth between maybe helping Jeremiah, then being hostile to Jeremiah, then maybe helping Jeremiah, then being hostile to Jeremiah. He can't make up his mind at all. And when he finally gets one good piece of advice, that is, as the walls are about to come down in Jerusalem, and he calls Jeremiah in secretly, and he says, don't tell anyone you're here. What should I do? And Jeremiah says, the Lord tells you to surrender to Babylon and you will live. And what does he do? He runs away and is killed. Men who have no respect for the word of God, men who have no respect for the people of God, men who have no respect for the worship of God. Different, but the same. And they're the same in this sense. They both experience the effects of sin. As a matter of fact, Nearly all of these kings experience the effects of sin. You may have heard me say this before. A good friend of mine made a profound statement that has stuck with me. And that is that sin makes you stupid. You do stupid things because of sin. Now, the kind of stupidity I'm talking about here is not the stupidity where your parents tell you, kids, don't call someone stupid. I don't mean where someone gets four points less than you on a test or can't remember the capital of Kansas. I mean it's the kind of stupidity that is a willful disobedience to the commands of God. It is foolish. It is harmful. 
It is wicked. And that's what these men do. As we look at Jehoiakim, we see here that he rebelled against the king of Babylon. Now, I want to give you just a small bit of context here. Babylon had come in and taken over the entire region. They had wiped out the Assyrians that were a threat for so many centuries. They wiped them out and they came down and they destroyed the Egyptians at the Battle of Carchemish and became the empire in the region. They were completely in control. And then they went down right into Egypt to take over Egypt. And they fought a battle that was indecisive. And the king took his army back to Babylon to re-equip it, replenish it. Jehoiakim takes that as a cue to rebel against him and side with Egypt. The country that's just been whipped once and just barely survived a second time. That's not exactly wise foreign policy. It also goes against the direct command of the Lord through Jeremiah. Well, he doesn't get the cake because Zedekiah does it even worse. After the Babylons defeat Egypt another time, and after they are in even more control, after half of the population of Judah has been deported for no good reason at all, he says, you know, I think I'll trust Egypt and rebel against Babylon. Egypt doesn't even have an army to send up there. That's the context of these famous verses in Jeremiah. You know, will you trust in chariots? Will you trust in horses? Will you trust Egypt? It's complete foolishness. There's another man here who's foolish. We'll see him in chapter 25. His name, oddly enough, is Ishmael. If you'll look with me here at chapter 25, beginning in verse 22. Over the people who remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, he appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakam, son of Shaphan, governor. You may have heard these names. Shaphan was the secretary to Hezekiah, and Ahiakim was one of the men whom Hezekiah sent to talk to the prophetess Huldah. So this is a guy with a sound head on his shoulders. And the captains... And their men, in verse 23, heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah governor. They came with their men to Gedaliah at Mitzvah. And so now, what's little left of the Israeli, or excuse me, the army of Judah, gathers together at this place. And in verse 24, And Gedaliah swore to them and their men, saying, Do not be afraid of the Chaldean officials. Live in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. He's giving them Jeremiah's advice. Look, the walls have been ripped down. Jerusalem has been burned to the ground. The Babylonians are in complete control. God has told us this would happen. My grandfather told us this would happen. The prophet Jeremiah tells us this will happen. And God is telling us to dwell safely in the land. And what happens? Ishmael comes up and kills him and a bunch of Babylonians. And that's the complete end of Judah. Sin makes you do ridiculous things. Will we ever learn? One commentator calls these three men the three stooges of Judah. And I think he's right. Now, 
the, the question for us is, we can look back at these kings and say, well, you know, they weren't very good at foreign policy. But the, the answer comes to us. Are there times when we think sin is smart or savvy? Does it make good business sense to lie? Does it make good business sense to cheat or to steal? Is it good for your marriage to keep things from your wife? Is it good for your family to abuse your children? No. Sin makes you do foolish things. We have temptations to all of these, all of us. We must look to the Lord. We must learn the lessons of God's Word. Will we ever learn? By God's grace, we will. But the second thing we see here is, will we ever smile? There's a sadness to this passage if we look at chapter 24, beginning at verse 8. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned for three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnath of Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the, Lord, in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. And at the same time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother, and his servants, and his officials, and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, and he cut in pieces all of the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had made, as the Lord had foretold. And he carried away Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon, the king's mother's, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000 of the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. There's a sadness of exile here. You know, we've seen difficulties in the kingdom. We've seen many exiles, but now here is the final exile in full force. There is no escaping it. Jehoiachin pays the price for his father's folly in rebelling against Babylon. And our author wants us to see this sadness. There is a, a way of telling a story, even in the Bible, that we need to look at the manner of the story. These facts are rattled off almost like a court reporter would rattle off the facts of a crime in reading back evidence. These people were taken. Those people were taken. His mother was taken. He was captive. The treasures were taken. This was taken. That was taken. And you almost get the feeling that the author wants to rush through this episode as quickly as possible because of the sadness that it brings to him. If you look here at verses 14, 15, and 16, you will see captivity words piled up over and over again. As we see here in verse 14, they were carried away. And again, they are captives. 
In verse 15, they are carried away into captivity. And then in verse 16, they are captive. Five times in three verses, the same Hebrew root is used. There is an incredible sadness. The cream of the crop of Judah are taken off into exile, including, at this time, the prophet Ezekiel. So there is a sadness that strikes us, a sadness of exile. But there's also a sadness of loss. For if we turn the page, in chapter 25, at verse 8, we see the description of the destruction of Jerusalem. How it is completely destroyed. They, verse 9, burned the house of the Lord, and they burned the king's house. And every great house they burned down, they didn't take them and occupy them, they burnt them to the ground. And the army of the Chaldeans, who were with the captain of the guard, all of them, they killed. They broke down. The rest of the people who were left in the city, together with the rest of the multitude, they carried off into exile. This is complete and utter destruction. The feeling you would get if you were in Judah would be if you stood at Galveston after the hurricane. You knew the hurricane was coming. You knew it was going to be bad. You knew there was going to be damage. But to stand out, do you remember seeing the pictures from the news? How the people would stand there and they, they couldn't even think with the destruction around them? They were completely lost. That's what faces the Jews here. And it's a result of their sin and wandering from God. That is the fearful result of human disobedience. The next thing we see then is the faithfulness of God to His Word because we might be tempted to make this a great moral story and to say, well, the people of Judah do bad things, they get punished. That's what happens. You have to do good. You can't do bad. It all's up to us. But the problem is, there are faithful people here being dragged off and killed. Ezekiel is in their midst. Jeremiah is in their midst. So it's not as simple as that. It's not just about us. It's really about God. Because this is God being faithful to His Word. There is a doom, but it is a faithful doom. If we think about the cause of all this destruction, it is not geopolitics. You see, if you lived in the kingdom of Israel, you might have thought that Syria was going to wipe you out because they were so powerful in defeating you until they got wiped out. And a country you never heard of called Assyria carried you off into exile. Two or three kings ago, you might have thought that Assyria was going to be Judah's problem. Babylon didn't even exist. And then Babylon comes in. We cannot trust circumstances. Geopolitics is not the cause. Bad decisions are not the cause. Lapse of judgment is not the cause. It is God that is the cause of this destruction. That's what we see here in chapter 24. Bands of Syrians and Chaldeans and Moabites and Ammonites come in, but it is God who sends them. Our author knows this. He foretold. God is always sovereign, people. Not just when it's good. You see, we like a sovereign God when blessings come our way. 
But then we feel at times that we need to find excuses for God when trials or difficulties come our way. That somehow He's not in control. That things are spinning out of control when that is not the case. God is completely in control. And that is a good thing. Because in the midst of all of this trial and difficulty and death and destruction, we can figuratively sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. If you turn in your hymnal to hymn number 32, you will see that the Scripture verse is from Jeremiah's Lamentations. The scripture that inspired the song that we sang about God's faithfulness to his people is Jeremiah crying by the side of the road because of this death and destruction. Because he knew God was in control and that God was bigger than death and destruction. And even if that was here now, it would not be there forever because his mercies are new every day. Is that real for you? after a really bad day with the kids? Is that real for you after you get home from the doctor? Is it real for you after the bad review at work? Or the rumors of layoffs? Or that you find out your portfolios were 35% of what you used to have? Do you dwell upon God's mercies that are new every day, even in the midst of difficulty? It's a faithful doom. But it's also doom upon doom. We cannot presume the Lord's blessing. There is a frightening verse, perhaps the most frightening verse in the Bible here, at chapter 24 and verse 4. Describing that God had sent these bands of raiders... The Lord had sent them for the sins of Manasseh and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. And the Lord would not pardon. We might also translate that, and the Lord did not want to forgive. Now think about that. This is the God who delights in forgiving. This is the God who sent His Son to reconcile a people to Himself. And His people had so presumed upon Him, had so rebelled against Him, had so hated Him, had so mocked Him, that God here did not want to to forgive. It was not His will to forgive. Now, that's the the theological truth of that is easy to see. Because if God had wanted to forgive, He would have what? Forgiven. And he would have accomplished it. But it's not the theology there that I want you to see. I want you to see God holds to his word. He will only be mocked so long. He will only be patient so long with those who rebel against him and hate his mercy and hate his worship. If you are not right with the Lord this morning, today is the day of salvation, says Paul in Rome. Do not put yourself in a position where God does not want to forgive. Come to Him. He has provided for forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a faithful God. 
who is faithful to His Word. And when He says He will forgive, He will. When He says repent, He means it. God is faithful in the midst of all of this destruction. Well, that's the bad news. It's a bit depressing, if we're honest with ourselves. Reading about smoking, buildings, captives, sin, stupidity, and death. And it's enough to make us want to close the book. To go sit somewhere quietly and forget about the story. But our author does something very interesting. Look with me at the end of chapter 25. In verse 27, he relates an event that happens 26 years after verse 26. So he must have an interest in this event because it's not in the story. So much so that some modern commentators think it's tacked on at the end by some late writer or some other odd literary theory they have. But what happens in this event? And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Now think about that. This man has been in exile 37 years. High school boys, college boys, he was your age and now he's older than your fathers. That's how long he spent in exile. 37 years. Of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the twelfth month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in that year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. So here's this formerly young king who really didn't do much in Judah. He was only king three months. Okay? He's king about the amount of time that our president has been president. A little bit more, but not much. And 37 years into his captivity, we pick up his story again. And what do we hear? We might ask ourselves the question from that old Christmas song. Do you hear what I hear? Do you see what I see now? Do you hear what I hear? And the first thing that we hear is that he's given new freedom in verse 27. He is set free from his captivity. We don't know exactly what that means if he was confined to a eight by six cell every day or if he had chains on but he is given new freedom he's also in verse 28 given new favor the king of babylon speaks kindly to him Hmm. he's now free and he's experiencing kindness and then in verse 29 we see he's given a new position or new clothes he is given at least some level of honor he puts off his prison garments And he puts on perhaps more the garments of state. And then in verse 29 and verse 30, we see he's given new privileges. He is to dine at the table of the king of Babylon day by day. And he has a provision. 
He's given all these new things. And then there's a slight echo here that's very interesting. Do you notice what he's called in verse 27? He's called the king of Judah. And again in verse uh, later in verse 27, he is called the king of Judah. Now, he's not the king because Judah doesn't have a kingdom anymore. And he's not the king because he was taken away and someone else was put king in his place. Why is he called the king of Judah here at the end? It's interesting. Well, maybe there's something more to this passage. Maybe it's not just what we hear as Christians, as those who possess the New Testament. Let's think about it and see if we know. Do you know what I know? There is a contrast here at the end of this chapter to the beginning of the chapter. Look at the beginning of chapter 25. It's the story of Zedekiah and how he is killed. How, or excuse me, how he is blinded. How his children are killed in front of him. How there is a very death around and about him. But at the end of the chapter, there is life around Jehoiachin. Zedekiah had a long reign, 11 years. Jehoiachin has a short reign. Maybe we're being set up for a distinction between the one who experienced all the wrath and judgment of God, and the one for whom some mercy is in store. Maybe there is some hope here in the midst of hopelessness. You see, there's also a contrast between the story of Ishmael and the story of Jehoiachin. Because Ishmael's foolishness sends the people of Judah back into Exodus land. You notice that? When he kills Gedaliah, they go to Egypt, back where they came from exile, from the Exodus. Jehoiachin will live and from Babylon will go at Exodus out of Babylon. Life and hope. There is a future hope here even in the midst of all of this sorrow and death. Now, their situation cannot get any worse. There is no more kingdom. There is no more temple. There is no more palace. There is no more real king. They're all exiles. It doesn't get any more hopeless than this. And here God is giving us a ray of hope. Translate that to your own life. Do you feel hopeless at times? Does it feel like the walls are going to crush in on you because you will never see the light at the end of the tunnel? And if you do, you are sure it will be a train. You never think the problem will get resolved. Yes, there's glory. Somewhere off, I'll die and go to heaven. But now, I'm hopeless. I live day to day with no hope that God can show me a ray of light. This passage is here for you and for me. Because God is preparing mercy for His people. There will not always be sadness and loss. Turn back with me, if you would, to a verse we looked at many, many months ago. To 1 Kings chapter 11. Do you remember that I said 
that God is faithful to His Word. And we saw Him being painfully faithful to His Word. Turn to chapter 11 and verse 39. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this. Namely, if you do not keep my statutes and my commandments. I will afflict the offspring of David because of this. But not forever. You know, sometimes it's the little words in the Bible that are so important. Don't let anyone, anyone, no matter how much seminary training they have, no matter how smart they seem, do not let anyone take that but out of your Bible. Ever. Not forever. That's why he's king of Judah. Because he's experiencing affliction, but it will not be forever. It will not. How do we know that is true? How can you take that to the bank? Turn to the book of Matthew. It takes a little bit of work because of these odd Jewish names. Chapter 1, the genealogy of Christ. We all look at this, especially around Christmas. And we go through the various names and we see the heroes of the faith. Abraham, Isaac, Boaz, David, Josiah. Giants of the faith. And we look at verse 12, and in verse 12, that's probably a verse that on an ordinary day, you stumble over the pronunciation of the name and you go right on. You go, I wonder who that guy is. Where's my study Bible? And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, or we might call him Jehoiachin, was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud. And Abiah the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim the father of Azor. And Azor the father of Zadok. And Zadok the father of Achim. And Achim the father of Aliud. And Aliud the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar the father of Matan. And Matan the father of Jacob. And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was to be born, who is called the Christ. That is where that sliver of light becomes a blaze of glory in your life and mine. In the most hopeless of situations, God has preserved to Himself mercy of His own work in Jesus. Do you believe that today? If you do, you can live through anything with hope, with purpose, and with love for God. That's what this depressing story is about. God is faithful. And even in experiencing His faithful judgments, we know that He is faithful. And that makes His promises even dearer to us. And He has shown Himself faithful in Christ. Will you trust Him today? Will you trust Him to be faithful to the very end, to bring you to glory, Christian? Trust your God. He is faithful. Let us pray.